According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures, as always. Join me once again, if you would, in, uh, let's go back to Matthew 27. We are uh, dealing with the first appearance before Pilate. And then, uh, very quickly, we will find ourselves in... uh, his appearance before Judas, or before uh, Herod, and then we'll get back to his second appearance before Pilate. Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 18 are the four chapters we have to deal with. These trials are recorded in all four Gospels. At least the ones before Pilate are recorded in all four Gospels. Uh, the appearance before Herod is only found in the Gospel of Luke. Luke 23 stands by itself as it relates to the uh, trial before Herod. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure we are filled with the Holy Spirit. We are equipped to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege we have to assemble together. Father, we ask for your hand of blessing on our time. Hedge us about, protect us, bless our study, Father. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. We've seen under point one how Pilate opened his court. He opened it with questions for the Pharisees, with questions for the religious leaders that were bringing Jesus here for trial. Under point two, we looked at his opening question for Jesus. He opened his trial with an inquiry into Jesus' kingship. We saw this was an item for which the Lord could not stay silent. He would stay silent in terms of the slander. He stayed silent in terms of the unfair accusations that were leveled against him. But one item he would not stay silent on was the uh, testimony as to his kingship, the testimony as to who he was. And so uh, I find that contrast powerful, the contrast between... Uh, his forced silence, and where he cannot stay silent, all right? And if I could, may I, there's one, yes I may, one short side trip. Join me in First Timothy, all right? Let's turn over to First Timothy, just for a brief moment. And I want to show you, in chapter 6, the um, testimony here, all right? First Timothy chapter 6. You get down to things you've got to be on guard against and things so forth. Um, flee from these things. Uh, verse 11 of 1 Timothy 6 says, Flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. This is what the, the good fight of faith is, all right? Uh, righteousness and godliness and faith and love and perseverance and gentleness. That's the good fight. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. You made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, this is the same homologeo we have in 1 John 1, 9, but this is not confessing your sins to be restored to fellowship. This is a different kind of confession. This is Timothy's confession when he stood up as a man of God. And he did so in the presence of many witnesses. The day he stands, what we call the ordination service, when a man stands forward and says, I am the Lord Jesus Christ, man. I will be used by him in whatever flock he puts me in, wherever he sends me. And the moment you do that, of course, (laughs) you put a big bullseye on your back. But now he's not the only one doing this. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. So what we're studying in this Life of Christ series related to Jesus and his trials and his standing here is more than just simply his betrayal, is more than just simply the uh, political machinations that the Jewish leaders had to go through in order to execute him. There was much more that was happening there. Jesus Christ testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Understand, Jesus Christ is the apostle and high priest of what? Of our confession. 
So there is a lot more going on here that hopefully we will understand in terms of our, our ecclesiology, our church polity. What do we do when we, uh, when are we expected to stay silent? And when are we demanded or required to testify the good confession? All right. And we have these two principles here that we've been studying. All right. So there's your, there's your side trip. Back to, uh, back to Matthew 27 then. As we deal, uh, as we deal with this. Actually, um, Rather than Matthew, where we really ought to be is in John 18.36. My kingdom is not of this world. This is where we ran out of time last week. John 18.36. My kingdom is not of this world. And we can identify which kingdom he's talking about here and what our connection is to the kingdom. Do we, do we preach the kingdom? And it, when we preach the kingdom, how so? If we preach the kingdom, do we preach the kingdom? We actually do. We actually do preach the kingdom. The Apostle Paul preached the kingdom throughout uh, the book of Acts. It is not wrong to preach the kingdom in the church age. We should preach the kingdom in the church age, but we should preach the kingdom from a church age standpoint as royal family of God. We're not citizens who want to enter into the kingdom. We are the bride of the king. And that's how we proclaim the kingdom. The kingdom is the kingdom in heaven. The kingdom that is not yet on earth, not till the king comes to earth. Our kingdom, we, we want to testify, is not of this world. Even as Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. All right, so here we are. This, by the way, these are the subpoints now of main point two. Subpoint A, Jesus affirmed his kingship, yet he refused to answer any accusation against him. I think this sets the pattern for us. When do we stay silent? When do we testify as part of fighting the good fight? When do we make our good confession in the presence of many witnesses? I think if it comes to slander, the lies of the adversary, the unfair accusations and the mistreatment and so forth... We can let that go. It's not even worthy of a response in many cases. But when it comes to our testimony as who we are, what we are, as ambassadors for the kingdom of God, as ambassadors for Jesus Christ in our ambassadorial function, if uh, we are asked to testify related to that, then we better not be silent. We better make that good confession in the presence of whomever regardless of what the consequences may be. Someone mocks us, someone scorns us, or maybe something even worse, maybe jail or imprisonment or confiscation of property, whatever it might be, if we have those things, in fact, coming up. Point B then. Jesus' present kingdom is not of this world, but of course his future kingdom will be. Critical that we identify that. His present kingdom is not of this world, but of course his future kingdom will be. And we need to identify this aspect of his kingdom. Is it one and the same? Are they different kingdoms? Is it just simply that uh, they're the same kingdom, but as it stands now, it's not yet on this earth? And it will be on this earth yet future? Or is the kingdom he has now different from the kingdom he will have in the future? Will those kingdoms actually be absorbed into each other? Sometimes... Uh, kingdoms are absorbed into each other when the same sovereign actually sits on both thrones or has both titles. Very common, actually, for a particular title to be absorbed into the crown, for example. And we no longer have an independent, you know, whatever. I'm going to get this all wrong. I should have Linty illustrate this for me. But the, uh, you know, the, the Duke of Windsor. Who's the Duke of Windsor? Well, that title actually is absorbed into the crown. And so one person, Queen Elizabeth right now, actually has multiple, dozens of titles. All right? Then not every sovereign has had those titles, but over the years, those titles have been absorbed into the crown. And so there could be components similar to that that we might see as it relates to the kingdom of heaven, as it relates to the kingdom of Israel, that is the Davidic throne. When has the Davidic throne ever had sovereignty over the kingdom of heaven? But will it? Okay. 
We've got to be careful how we look at it. Jesus Christ took his seat at the Father's right hand. Was that the Davidic throne? Only if you insist that it is, but you can't find a verse to tell you that it is. All right. Only if you want to embrace Dallas Seminary's modern idea of progressive dispensationalism. The right hand of the Father is the Davidic throne in their view. I think it's a very weak view. All right. Might as well say that chair right there is the Davidic throne. I sit in it every so often. I have no verse, Bible verse, to validate that that chair is the throne of David, but why not? All right. His present kingdom is not of this world, but of course his future kingdom will be. The setting for the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ is the millennial earth. The setting for the fullness of time kingdom of Jesus Christ is the fullness of time, new earth, new heavens, new earth. All right. Now, under this, the subpoints. Not of this cosmos or not from this place. Christ's kingdom must be entered by faith. We do enter into the kingdom. And we enter into the kingdom today by faith. It's not a kingdom that's yet upon this earth. We're on this earth today as ambassadors of a kingdom that's not here yet. Our kingdom is not of this world. We're not fighting to change political policy in this world based upon the kingdom that we represent. That change will take place once our kingdom conquers this kingdom. All right? And not before. Not of this cosmos nor from this place, Christ's kingdom must be entered by faith. Did you watch the, uh, the, the Bible thing Sunday night? Episode 4. There's one more to go. It's going to wrap up on Easter Sunday. But um, John 3 was quoted. They, they portrayed the, the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Now, it bothers me that it, they portrayed it as taking place during the Passion Week. I believe the context for John 3 is very early in the ministry of Jesus Christ, not late in Jesus Christ's ministry. Anyway, so they dramatically portrayed Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night, and they did so during the Passion Week. All right, the timing is wrong, but they actually quoted John 3 extensively in the interchange between Jesus and, and Nicodemus about you must be born again, and Nicodemus didn't understand how he could be born a second time. And I thought they did a very good job with that. All right. A future earthly kingdom is guaranteed by the literal promises to Abraham, and this is where we spent all our time last week, looking at the promises to Abraham in Genesis 13. That was literal land that Abraham was walking around on. That was his land. Likewise, literal promises to David in 2 Samuel 7. A literal throne. Jesus Christ will sit on David's literal throne. We looked at Isaiah chapter 9, a promise of a kingdom on this earth. Jeremiah 23, a promise of a kingdom on this earth. Ezekiel 37, dry bones, the nation that was dead is going to come back to life. In some respects, I believe that's already happened to the extent that the bones are knit together. There's flesh on the bones, as it were. I don't believe life gets breathed into it until the uh, millennial kingdom. But there is, a, uh, there is now uh, a, a partially resurrected corpse in the land of Israel, if that makes any sense to you. Okay? Read the dry bones chapter in Ezekiel 37. You see what I'm talking about. Daniel chapter 2. A coming kingdom. It's going to be a stone and it's going to come, not going to rise from the earth. It's going to come from heaven, cut as without hands and thrown to the earth. It's going to smash the Gentile empires and then it will fill, it'll grow and fill the entire earth. Finally, Zechariah 14, 1 through 21, as we ran out of time. So there is going to be a future earthly kingdom. Don't confuse what's going to happen in the future with what we already see today. What we already see today is, of course, the kingdom of heaven is entered into by faith. And you become part of the, when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you become part of the royal family of God. You are neither Jew nor Gentile at that point. You are baptized into union with Jesus Christ. You are a heavenly citizen. And in the future millennial kingdom, you won't be a citizen of that kingdom. You will be reigning as the queen, as the bride of the, of the, uh, of the king. All right. So don't get all caught up in all these enter into the king, kingdom verses uh, as far as the citizens of that kingdom are concerned. It'd be like, you know, getting all worked up over whether you have an invitation to the wedding supper of the Lamb. We're not receiving invitations. We're issuing invitations. We are the bride of that wedding. And so, um, getting all worked up over receiving 
those uh, invitations. It's kind of goofy. All right. Finally, then, we didn't have time to deal with this a week ago. The earthly setting. So we understand point one's truth. We understand point two's truth. Now let's put them together. The earthly setting for the kingdom of God on earth does not change the spiritual requirement for entrance into it. The earthly setting for the kingdom of God on earth does not change the spiritual requirement for entrance into it. And this is where Israel's future kingdom is going to be different than Israel's past historic kingdom. The earthly setting for the kingdom of God on earth does not change the spiritual requirement for entrance into it. And the day is coming when to enter into the kingdom on earth will require your salvation. Unbelievers will not be allowed. Those, every unbeliever that survives the tribulation is going to be removed. They will not enter into the kingdom of God on earth. And this is going to be a difference from Israel's past. Historical Israel, you have believers and unbelievers alike. And they entered into that kingdom by being born of that kingdom or emigrating and, and you know, uh, adopting. Your people will be my people. I will live among you and obey your laws and so forth. You could have sojourners in the land that would be, um, that would be, uh, that would emigrate. Uriah the Hittite, presumably, uh, cast off his Hittite allegiance and swore to uh, King David and became a citizen. Ruth, we're told, abandoned her Moabite heritage and became uh, a Jewish citizen. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. There was a procedure for proselytizing Gentiles to be accepted as, uh, as a Gentile sojourner within their land. But in the Old Testament, if you were born in the land of Jewish parents, whatever your tribe, then that's, you were a citizen. That was your land. That was your nationality. You were, you know, you were the tribe you were. Whether you were saved or not. In the millennial kingdom, no unbeliever will enter into the kingdom of God on earth. And so we see it. John 3, of course, you must be born again. This is true today to enter into the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God in heaven. John 3, verses 3 and 5. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 5, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So I think the parallelism between see and enter, that's pretty clear there from verse 3 to verse 5, that they're used interchangeably. They're, they're synonymous. Um, some people really try to drive a distinction between them, and I, I've always found that kind of weak, the way that they're put in parallel here. All right. So just like today, no unbeliever today is a part of God's kingdom. They're still part of Satan's kingdom. And that's not going to change when God's kingdom comes to earth. First of all, in the regency of Jesus Christ, but then secondly, in the paterological reign of the new heavens and new earth. There's going to be a distinction between the millennium and after the millennium. And some of that I don't know how much we'll get into this morning. But... Um, Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven is the prayer of Jesus Christ. All right, that's his prayer to his father. Thy kingdom. What's the father's kingdom? As distinguished from the son's kingdom. As distinguished from what the son reigns on the throne of David or on the throne of man. Okay, son of David, son of man. It's also son of God. So when he brings in the paterological kingdom, how does that work? And that takes you into the plan of God reader and the... New heavens, new earth, uh, fullness of time studies. All right, so John 3, verses 3 and 5. It requires spiritual birth. Your physical birth puts you into a physical kingdom. And then however you manage to emigrate and naturalize and whatever else, it is what it is, all right? But spiritual birth puts you into the spiritual kingdom. It's by faith that you're transferred from the domain of darkness and delivered into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Matthew 21, Matthew 21, verses 31 and 32. What do we see here? It 
Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. <laughs> okay, This also was portrayed in Sunday night's uh, History Channel uh, Bible episode. Um, I thought it was a pretty good uh, portrayal. That Pharisee was really, uh, his facial expressions were pretty uh, humorous when uh, Jesus calls the Matthew from his tax desk and, and uh, some of the women and so forth. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. Notice, faith is the requirement. You did not believe him. But tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. So what's the difference? What sets, them, what sets apart the tax collectors and the prostitutes from the, from the Pharisees? It's not their morals. It's not their conduct of their lives. It's their faith response to the revelation of Jesus Christ. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe him. Not even the metamelamai remorse brought you to a point of faith. Isn't that tragic? Over to Matthew 25. Sheep and goat judgment. You understand what this is. Matthew 25, verses 34 through 40. When the war is over and the provisional government begins to administer justice, something that happens very frequently is removals, executions. All right. What did we uh, preside over after World War II? War trials. Right. Uh, this follows the conquest, the military conquest of Armageddon. This follows Jesus Christ's conquering work. And the Gentiles are gathered together. And only believers enter the millennial kingdom. This is entirely a Gentile context. Matthew 25, verses 34 through 40. The king will say to those on his right. Now I've got to back up a little bit. Um, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory. Son of Man. So he has not just sovereignty over Israel. But sovereignty over Gentiles as well as the Son of Man. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. And all the Gentiles will be gathered before Him. All the nations will be gathered before Him. Same word. Sometimes translated Gentiles, sometimes translated nations. Will be gathered before Him and He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put sheep on His right, goats on His left. Well, that sounds pretty judgmental, doesn't it? <laughs> You know, this is, I think this is goat discrimination. How can we discriminate? Why would we discriminate? You know, thankfully our postmodern ridiculous satanic lust for anti-discrimination will end when Jesus Christ returns. Yes, this is goat discrimination. All right. We discriminate all the time. Discrimination is not a bad word unless you're caught up in satanic philosophy. We always discriminate. All right. So what's the standard between right and left? The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Again, there's a lot of studies that go into, well, is there a difference between see and enter? Is there a difference between enter and inherit? Is there, uh, why are these different terms here? They're there for reasons, and they're deeper studies than we want to go into at the moment. Let's just try to keep it as simple as we can here this morning. There is an inheritance as they enter. Israel will have an inheritance in their land grant, their boundaries and blessings. But every Gentile nation as well will have an inheritance that they will have vested in them uh, when they enter. All right. And then those on the left. He will say, verse 41, he will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Boy, there's an entirely different inheritance. <laughs> okay. Only believers enter the millennial kingdom. Every unbeliever has an eternal destiny apart from uh, God and the glory of His light or the light of His glory. 
The standard being, don't get confused, let me back up to the, uh, to the sheep here. Now he does mention behavior in verse 35 when he says, For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in, naked and you clothed me, sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And it mentions behavior. All right, and if you were with us when we taught the Olivet Discourse, you already know where I'm going with this, <laughs> right? Because the behavior is not the basis for the judgment. The behavior is a reflection of what is the basis for the judgment. In other words, they didn't earn the millennial kingdom by doing good deeds. And the other guys didn't forfeit the millennial kingdom by not doing good deeds. Whether they did good deeds or not was a reflection of their righteousness. You'll notice in verse 37, then the righteous will answer him. Notice that? It's the righteous will answer him. The status is the righteousness. And it was by virtue of their righteousness. How do we receive righteousness? By grace through faith. That's right. Abraham believed God. It was imputed to him, reckoned to him as righteousness. For anybody to be righteous. They're saved by grace through faith. And what's going to happen for Gentile believers in the tribulation? Gentile believers in the tribulation are going to observe the, uh, the uh, affliction of the, of the Jewish believers in the tribulation. And they're going to provide for them. They're going to clothe them. They're going to feed them. They're going to minister to them. They're going to provide for them. They're going to identify that it's the, that it's the Jewish believers that are the stewards in this age. They're going to identify that it's the Jewish believers that are the main targets of Antichrist, although Gentile believers too will come under Antichrist attack. All right. So when did we see you sick? When did we see you naked? Etc. Etc. To the extent you did to one of these brothers of mine, the racial brothers of Jesus Christ are his Jewish brethren. Even the least of them you did to me. Likewise for the unrighteous. The unrighteous. So it's not their behavior that earns their entrance into the millennium. The behavior is a reflection of their righteousness or lack of righteousness. Only believers enter into the millennium. That's what turns you from a goat to a sheep if you're a Gentile in the tribulation. Okay, now in the church age, if you're a Gentile and you get saved, you become royal family of God, part of the body of Christ, neither Jew nor Gentile. But in the tribulation... Gentiles that get saved become go from goat to sheep. All right, they stay Gentile in their status. So that takes care of the Gentiles. What about Israel? Ezekiel chapter twenty. You know, judgment begins at the house of the Lord, and I should have taken us here first because I believe the Ezekiel twenty judgment precedes the Matthew twenty-five judgment. Because in Matthew 25, he's already on his throne, and I believe in Jerusalem, with all of believing Jews around him, before he gathers the Gentiles together for judgment. Let's go to Ezekiel 20, and we'll see the Jewish judgment. Very similar. Jewish judgment. Where uh, there's not a single unbelieving Jew that's going to make it into the kingdom. Just because he's racially Jewish won't count. Oh, it counted in the Old Testament. You can be part of the kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament as an unbeliever. But not in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. So in Ezekiel 20, verses 33 through 38. As I live, declares the Lord God. As I live. This is powerful. The God who cannot lie is taking a vow. As I live. How long is that? <laughs> That's forever. Eternal life. God is the eternal I am. And so when He takes a vow and ties it to His existence, as I live, you understand how powerful this becomes. This is the God who cannot lie, who takes a vow based upon His continued existence. You understand, for God to break His promises, God would have to stop existing. There would have to be no God. As I live, declares the Lord. It's tragic to me how we lose sight of this. You know, as a culture, 
we are so modern and postmodern. We even we don't have any comprehension of oaths, right? Do we? I mean, really? Put a hand on a Bible? Why do we do that? Raise our right hand? Why do we do that? What does the raised right hand mean anyway? Why do we swear? So help me God. Why do we swear? And that becomes optional now in our atheistic culture. Uh, you know, on a Bible, on a Quran, on a Constitution, on whatever we choose to use. Uh, what is the point? What, what makes that statement different from any other statement that could be true or false? We say, well, if it's in a court of law, then it's perjury. It's legally binding. And, well, it depends on who your lawyer is. <laughs> and it depends on what you can testify to without being brought up on perjury charges. Truth is uh, rather flexible in this age of uh, run by the, the, the liar from the beginning. All right. But we understand a vow. When I say, on my honor... When I say, so help me God, what does that mean? It means if I violate this, help me God, because that's the one who's holding me to my vows. And, and nowadays we just ignore it. Nowadays it's just, okay, I committed perjury. Yeah, is there a civil fi- fine penalty? I'll just go ahead and pay it. <laughs> wow. The, uh, the God of truth doesn't hold to co- uh, contract breaking. Nowadays, well, you know. Okay, I got a lease. I'll break my lease. All right, I made a contract to buy a vehicle. Who cares? It's just, you know, a mark against my credit score. Do you or do you not represent the God of truth? Why is it cross my heart and hope to die as just a stupid little children's ditty on the playground? Stick a needle in my eye. Right? <laughs> liar, liar, pants on fire. The whole thing, is it's, it's a mockery anymore. As far as let your yes be yes, let your no be no, and be true to your word. All right. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand, and with an outstretched arm, and with wrath poured out. Hmm. That's, that's not, sounds like a hate crime in our culture. With a mighty hand, with outstretched arm, and with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. I shall be king over you. The Davidic throne is vacated when this prophecy is uttered. But it will be reseated. And it will be the son of David, but it will be God himself. Both are true. Because the son of David is God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. I will be king over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. See, the regathering of every Jewish person on the planet is universal. But they're not all brought into glory immediately. First comes judgment. You know, when they left Egypt, they didn't just immediately go into the promised land. What happened first? They entered into judgment. God took them to Sinai. God organized them by tribes. God established a law. God entered into judgment with them. Prepared them to enter into Canaan. When they finally did under Joshua 20 years later, right? 40 years later. So, what do we see here? He regathers every Jewish person from the planet. Those that survived the trib, okay? There aren't going to be many. But he regathers all the living Jewish people, believers and unbelievers alike. Just like sheep and goats are gathered. Everybody. Now, Israel is gathered. And I'll bring you into the wilderness of the peoples. And there I will enter into judgment with you face to face as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. So I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. Just like the Exodus event. Before they could enter into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey and all of that, they had to, first of all, enter into judgment. Likewise here. I will make you pass under the rod. I will make you pass under the rod. What do you think? Jacob, when he was shepherding Laban's flocks and his flocks, and he used his rod to separate the the dark sheep from the white sheep. Was that racist? Or the speckled sheep from the non-speckled sheep? Or the why were there several rounds of sheep discrimination? Okay, 
to distinguish between Laban's flock and Jacob's flock. That's a kind of a mysterious chapter, and a lot of people don't like it. But I think it's shadow doctrine. I think it's prophetic. I think it's pointing forward to what eventually is going to happen when Israel is brought under the rod of the covenant. Notice, I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. Israel today is not under the new covenant. Israel today, that's a future covenant. Days are coming. They're not there yet. The new covenant is made with the house of Israel, the house of Judah. The new covenant with forgiven sins. The new covenant with the law written on their heart. Israel is not there yet. Now the blood that provides for that covenant has already been shed. Jesus told his disciples in the upper room, he gave them communion and said, this cup is my blood of the new covenant which is given for you. The blood of the new covenant has been shed, but it's not yet been applied. All right? You understand the difference? When the animal dies, the blood is shed. But until, the, until it's sprinkled on the veil, it's not applied. Until it's smeared on the mercy seat, it's not applied. And there were multiple places where that blood had to be applied. There was incense that had to be offered on the altar before the blood could be applied. And then it was sprinkled on the veil. And then you go within the veil. And then it was smeared, anointed, Christed. (laughs) That's a bad term. Christ is anointed one, okay? Uh, It was anointed, smeared on the mercy seat. Likewise, Passover itself didn't do any good to butcher the animal. That blood had to be applied on the doorpost and the lintel. Until the blood was applied, then the ritual was not yet complete. And the death of the animal didn't save anybody. It was the smearing of the blood that saved the firstborn son when the angel of death passed over. Likewise, the death of Christ on the cross doesn't save anybody. Careful. Hear me out. His death doesn't save anybody until that blood is applied. And when does that happen? When you believe. There you go. When you believe. Then the righteousness of God is imputed to your account. The blood of Christ is then applied to your benefit. In the the metaphor we understand. Now, likewise, there was a lot more going on on the cross than just simply humanity's sin being redeemed, or humanity's sin being atoned for, humanity being redeemed. Let's step out of our perspective in the church and let's relate to Israel here. Something else that was happening on the cross was the blood of the new covenant was being shed. The new covenant with Israel, not with the church, with Israel. And they have to be brought under the rod of that covenant. That's what happens here. I will make you pass under the rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. And I will purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me. Every Jewish unbeliever will be personally executed by Jesus Christ. Their soul will be cast into hell for the thousand-year millennial kingdom. I will purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn. He promised he would all Israel, he would regather all Israel from the four corners of the earth. So he won't go back on that promise. Every Jewish person is going to be brought from the four corners of the earth to stand at this judgment. But they will not enter into the land. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. All right? So we see the removal of the unbelieving Gentiles in the sheep and goat judgment. We see the removal of unbelieving Jews in the wilderness judgment of Israel. When you combine Matthew 25 with Ezekiel 20, I believe you see the entirety of the, uh, the post-conquest tribunal that ends the Armageddon campaign and then allows for the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ to begin. Does that make sense? All right. Finally then, how does Pilate's trial end? 
John 18:38, also Luke 23:4. Jesus says, "My kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, my servants would be fighting." My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting. In other words, uh, citizens of a king defend their king. They fight at the king's defense. They fight for the benefit of that kingdom at the direction of the king. So that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you're a king? And Jesus said, you say correctly, I am a king for this I have been born. For this I have come into the world, two different things, and to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So Pilate then said to him, what is truth? And when he said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. Jesus received a not guilty verdict. Jesus received a not guilty verdict. For many respects, it's kind of interesting was this now his fourth trial? He had three during the night, one before Annas, one before Caiaphas, and then the, the one legal trial as soon as the sun came up where he was uh, convicted all three times by the religious leaders. Now for trial number four, he actually gets a not guilty verdict. It's also stated in uh, Luke 23, 4. This is the first of Pilate's three declarations of Jesus' innocence. Three times he's declared innocent. Luke 23, 4. And it's kind of interesting. He's, he's declared innocent three times, and yet he's crucified anyway. When uh, Pilate surrenders to the, to the will of the mob. <laughs> when has that ever happened in any other court structure, right? When has that ever happened in American courts or Texas courts or any... You know, where a judge declares you not guilty and you get executed anyway. Luke 23, 4. Verse 3, Pilate asked him, saying, Are you king of the Jews? He answered him and said, As you say. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. It's the first of three declarations of innocence that Pilate makes. All right. Let's turn it over then to, let's stay in Luke 23, and let's move on to Herod's trial. Pilate finds an escape to this trial when he learns that Jesus is a Galilean. Pilate finds an escape to this trial when he learns that, Je that Jesus is a Galilean. And he realized time and time again, Pilate just wants a way out, <laughs> right? He just wants this, can we end this, you know? I pronounced him not guilty. You're not happy with that. You've got a, an outcome. You want the guilty verdict. And now he finds a way out when he learns that Je Jesus is Galilean. Still in Luke 23, I find no guilt in this man. That's verse 4. But they kept insisting, verse 5, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. And when Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. Oh, wait a minute. He started in Galilee? Is that where he's from? Is that his allegiance? Is that his citizenship? When he learned that uh, he asked whether the man was a Galilean, and when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod. Coincidentally, who himself was also in Jerusalem at that time. The Herodians were quasi, I mean, they were Edomites, but they were quasi-observant of Jewish customs. Uh, and uh, this is the Passover season. It's, this is a time that, uh, that Herod would be in Jerusalem. Okay? It's not Herod the Great. This is Herod uh, the Tetrarch. We've, we've uh, studied our different Herods in the past. All right. So now this becomes trial number five. Trial number five. Now, Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus. This is the same Herod, by the way, that chopped the head off of John the Baptist. Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time because he'd been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. You know, for three and a half years now, he kept hearing all these stories about, you know, the blind healed and the lame walking and, and, and dead people not staying dead and, you know, walking on water, all these things. Most of the Lord's famous miracles, the majority of them took place in Galilee. And the ones that didn't take place in Galilee took 
place in Perea. Guess what? Herod the Tetrarch was over Galilee and Perea, those two regions. Uh, uh, Pilate was only governor of the, the Judean region. Okay, So, he wanted to see some sign performed by him, and he questioned him at some length, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently. And Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another this very day. Before that, they'd been enemies with each other. <laughs> what is it that can cause enemies to stop being enemies? Right? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. But what is it in the spiritual realm? What is it that can bring about uh, these widely different views in agreement? What can, what can unite a Sadducee and a Pharisee? What can unite Pilate and Herod? What can unite Muslims and Hindus? You know, if, if Christians aren't around, then they hate each other and they'll kill each other and so forth. But what can unite Muslims and Hindus? Or Hindus and Buddhists, as in the case of Sri Lanka and the, the persecution that takes place there, is their hatred for Christ. Their hatred for Christ. You know, what, what, what unites feminists with homosexual activists, with Muslims? I mean, think about it. Why do the feminists not hate Islam? They put their women in burqas. You would think that feminists would have trouble with that. Why do feminists defend the Islamic treatment of women? they have a mutual hatred for the God of the Bible. They have a mutual hatred for the absolute truth of biblical Christianity. That's why. And the homosexuals? You know how they're treated in Muslim cultures? They're hanged with great regularity. Public hangings. But they'll cooperate with the, uh, the whole industry as all united when it comes to their opposition to biblical Christianity. All right, real quickly then, if you want more information uh, about Herod Antipas, uh, there's good articles. Uh, Grace Notes has wonderful articles. I think we've shared some of those in the past. Oops. Herod Antipas ruled Galilee from some year to some other year. And uh, I fully intended to uh, go back and put the real numbers in there because I didn't want to just do it from the top of my head. And so I failed to do that from the top of my head, and there's a stupid-looking slide. Herod Antipas ruled Galilee from some year to some year. Look it up. All right. There is a good article in the Wycliffe Bible Encyclopedia. And as I say, there's a good article in Grace Notes related to all the Herods. This is the Wycliffe Bible Encyclopedia. Uh, this man, who has been rated as the least attractive of the Herods, was the younger son of Herod the Great and Malthace. You know, Herod the Great had like ten different wives, and he murdered most of them and, and executed a lot of the sons that he thought were, were fighting for his throne. Uh, he's mentioned several times in the Gospels. The ministries of both John the Baptist and Jesus occurred during his tenure of office as Tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. Originally, Antipas made Sepphoris uh, his capital. That's between Nazareth and Cana. Later on, he built uh, Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee, naming it after the Emperor Tiberius, who had succeeded Augustus. On a visit to Rome, Antipas became enamored of the wife of his half-brother, Herod Philip, and before long, he married her. She insisted that her divorce, he divorced the wife he had and uh, the daughter of the king of Perea. So she wasn't going to be in a polygamous marriage. She said he had to divorce this, Arabian, this Arabic king, his daughter there. Uh, when the wife learned of Antipas' intentions, she returned to her father's house and so forth. Now, this is what John the Baptist had preached against, that he, was, he, he married his brother's wife and that that was, was not biblical, was wrong. So uh, John the Baptist loses his head over that entire thing. Jesus calls him a fox in Luke 13, 31, uh, and yet um, doesn't come face to face with him until the, uh, the day of his crucifixion. Antipas was not on good terms with Pilate. Among other things, Pilate had killed some of his subjects when they were uh, bent on sacrificing at the temple. There's a reference to this in Luke 13:1 that 
um, of Galileans there that Pilate had mixed the blood of the Galileans with the blood of the sacrifices. And uh, that was uh, a tremendous offense that caused Jewish hatred against Pilate, but it also caused friction between Pilate and Herod because the Galileans were his subjects. And if anyone's going to mix their blood, it's going to be Herod, not Pilate. Okay? If you're not going to abuse my people, I'm going to abuse my people. And uh, uh, different things there. But after this uh, event, they become, they become good buddies. Um, the condescension of Pilate in sending Jesus to him as an interlude in the trial pleased him so much that his quarrel with Pilate was mended. Different uh, aspects there. Now deaf to the voice of conscience, this ruler was soon to begin paying for his crimes. His troops met resounding defeat at the hand of the Arabs. Uh, the Arabs all mad, by the way, because he had divorced the princess, the Arabic princess, the daughter of the Arabic king. Uh, and so they crushing victory by the Arabs there. Uh, his subjects were quick to attribute this to divine retribution for his marital irregularities and his murder of John the Baptist. Finally, prodded by his wife Herodias to seek from the emperor the title king, what he was trying to do was he was trying to get Herod the Great's full, complete dominion, trying to have Pilate deposed, trying to get uh, the full tetrarchy restored into Herod's original dominion. And uh, he, so he appealed to the emperor, uh, but sadly, the, the emperor had actually given the title king to Agrippa, to the north and to the east of him. Antipas requested this boon of Caligula, the new emperor, only to be rebuffed and banished to Gaul, modern-day France, where he ended his days. All right. So much for <laughs> Herod. All right. If you want more on that, uh, the entire article on the entire Herodian clan is very, uh, very worthwhile. It almost reads like a modern-day, uh, I think, a soap opera. It's like, you know, back in the day when Dynasty was on TV, right? You know, I'm talking, I'm dating myself now. I haven't watched TV since the 80s. But, um, you know, the, all the, you know, whether Dallas or Dynasty or any of those, they had nothing on the Herodians. Oh, my goodness. The Herodians were masters of this craft in the things that they would do. Anybody that could play off uh, Cleopatra and, and Mark Anthony and Augustus and, and play them back and forth, uh, were, uh, they were pretty good at what they did. All right. A point B, a previous event had left Pilate and Herod Antipas at odds with one another. We saw that in the Wycliffe article just a moment ago. A previous event had left Pilate and Herod Antipas at, at odds with one another. So this actually is a win-win for Pilate. And when he realizes that Jesus is Galilean, he realizes, wow, wait a minute. This is a win-win for me. First of all, I can, get, I can wash my hands of this whole trial thing and, and you know, get away from the, the religious leaders and their crusade to kill this guy. And then secondly, I can also kind of patch things up with, with uh, Herod Antipas. You know, we can possibly, you know, give him this prisoner here as a, as a goodwill gesture and we can patch things up a bit. So it's kind of a win-win for Pilate. He's going to, uh, he's going to kill two birds with one stone doing this. Uh, doing this. Uh, we don't really have more about this in Luke 13.1 other than mingling the blood of the Galileans with the uh, sacrifice. Um, it was portrayed, by the way, in uh, Sunday night. I keep talking about Sunday night's Bible episode. I just enjoyed watching it because it connected well with our current studies. Finally, Herod. Herod had both a desire to kill Jesus and a desire to see what miracles he might perform. All right. When you back up to that Luke 13 episode, when Jesus calls him a fox, there is at least alleged... A desire to murder Jesus. And uh, whether this was true or not, I think is debatable. We discussed this back in this episode, if you might remember, when we taught this. Luke 13, 31. Uh, this is during Jesus' Perean ministry before he uh, starts to approach Jerusalem. So maybe a year prior to the events we're studying today. And uh, in verse 31, some Pharisees approach saying to him, Go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. And so he's got a message for them to deliver to Herod. calls him that old fox. Okay. And, um, and part of that message is to 
you know, brag about some of the miracles or to at least talk about the miracles. Maybe he's not bragging, right? It's not bragging if you can do it. But he, he uses these miracles as a point of contact to go back and report to, go back and report to uh, Herod and tell him about these miracles and, uh, and then communicate likewise today and tomorrow and the third day I reach my goal. We've got uh, some uh, hints at the, the third day. What's significant about the third day? All right. Well, probably ought to say something about that maybe this coming Sunday. All right. What's uh, significant about the third day? Now, again, I don't know. How do we reconcile a desire to kill Jesus with a desire to see what miracles he might perform? Well, maybe what changed was he received this message from these Pharisee messengers that they did go back and they did report to him saying, uh, you know, you want him dead, but he called you a fox and he's threatening to do three days of miracles here. And then uh, Herod, evidently, got excited by that idea. Wow, miracles. Okay, Because the last prophet he executed didn't do any miracles. John the baptizer had no miracles. So this desire to see miracles is kind of an interesting thing. Do we not have this today? You know, the superficial approach to Christianity that just wants to see the, you know, gee whiz, wants to be entertained, wants to see, you know, all the excitement. This trial doesn't last very long. Point D, Jesus' trial before Herod is quite short because Jesus refused to open his mouth to speak any word. You know, how long does the trial last when the defendant just doesn't say anything? Just stands there. All right. So it's uh, quite short because Jesus refused to open his mouth or speak any word. Now, this is remarkable, too. He was silent before the accusations, but he spoke when defending his role as king before Pilate. Here, he won't even do that. Here, he just stays silent. It's interesting that the Herodian reign is not a legitimate reign anyway in terms of the Daniel plan and program that goes from Babylon to Persia to Greece to Rome. Jesus is subject to Rome because Israel is subject to Rome as far as a matter of jurisdiction is concerned. All right. So the trial is cut quite short because Jesus won't even open his mouth. Finally, this occasion will allow Herod and Pilate to mend the fence and start getting along. All right. This occasion will allow Herod and Pilate to mend the fence and get along. Can't we all just get along? All right. Which means next week we will return to the retrial before Pilate. The sixth and final trial is the retrial before Pilate, the second hearing in Pilate's court. And uh, Herod says, I can't do anything with him. Obviously finds no guilt in him. And sends him back. And we have additional testimonies of innocence that are, uh, that are found here. Um, Luke 23, 13. I'll have to close with this. Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites uh, the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. So he says, my court returned a not guilty verdict. Herod's, Herod's court returned a not guilty verdict. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. And uh, they're not going to stand for that. The not guilty verdict is unacceptable. A public scourging and release is unacceptable. So he keeps trying to find compromises. Would you be happy if I just whipped him? Would you be happy if... They're not going to be happy until he's dead. And that's what we'll pick up next week. All right? We'll also be introduced to Barabbas next week. Uh, his, his next attempt to uh, avoid this is uh, trying to release a prisoner. And they keep insisting on Barabbas instead of Jesus. And so we'll deal with that in a point four. One week from today. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the examples that we have here and what we have to learn from. And Father, we too may have some difficult days ahead as our nation advances into its realms of darkness.
this uh, descent into um, the apostasy, Father, may cause uh, our positions to then become criminal. Right now, they're unpopular. How long before they become criminal? And at what point will we then face judicial proceedings for uh, testifying to the good confession in the presence of Pontius Pilate? So, Father, if those days are indeed in store, then equip us today to prepare ourselves for what you may ask. Father, we thank you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.